Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. I am joined tonight by a fellow first-gen hunter. Um, we'll get into that at some point, I'm sure. This is just going to be a fun conversation, one where uh, the person on the other end of the line can uh, relate to the the challenges and struggles, the the barriers of getting into hunting as an adult, but uh, a guy who also just got done setting a bunch of traps. What was that all about, Mo? <laughs> You want to talk about traps? Yeah, man. Why, what are you doing? What are you doing dropping off traps tonight? <laughs> so, um, so this farm that I, that I bought, uh, the most recent farm that I bought, has a lot of raccoons living on it to the point where I, I probably get, you know, 10 raccoons every single, different raccoons every single night. Whoa. Uh, the spring, the summer, whatever, you know. They're always there and uh, little ones, big ones, they're all over the place. Um, and I haven't seen a single um, turkey in mm. the entire, uh, almost almost a full year that I've owned this property. I think maybe I saw a hen once in the spring and that was it. So wow. uh, a, a lot of reading. Um, the guys from the Management Advantage did some some uh, recent articles and some, uh, they, they talked about, uh, the impact that trapping can have on uh, on the raccoon population on your property if you get after them, and then obviously the impact that that has on the, your turkey population because uh, raccoons are a pretty massive uh, nest predators and they have a, a huge impact on the on the turkey population. So I I've been getting after them now that the the season's over for me. Uh, and I've gotten enough intel on how they're moving around the property. Um, I got um, I got into trapping actually two years ago, and it's not actually it's not that hard. Uh, I, I picked up a book, read you know, watched a bunch of YouTube videos. Uh, the property that I had before this one actually had a lot of coyotes. Mm. I would get you know, just like I was talking about raccoons every night. I would have coyotes every night at the other property. Mm. So. I read that the most efficient way to get after coyotes is by by trapping them versus uh, shooting them with a rifle. And I've done that with a rifle, and it's a lot of fun, but it's mm-hmm. nowhere near as, as efficient. So um, I bought um, uh, this. They have like a starter kit, a legit starter kit at uh, uh, what was this place? Minnesota Trapping Company or something like that. Mm. Uh, it's an online place, and and then they send you like everything that you need. To get into trapping, uh, they'll send you like six um, uh, the, your typical claw, uh, wow. dog, uh, pop catching traps. Um, they come with the stakes. They send you the lures. They send you the the baits. They send you the tools because you're gonna need like a mini shovel. You're gonna need like a mini pickaxe. You're gonna need like a like a steak a steak driver. Like you need all of these stuff, all of this stuff. So they'll send you kit with everything that you need to to get into it. And then I just picked up a small uh, trapping note, like like a book on it, like pretty small one, and then um, and a mini auger to drill some to drill some holes in into the soil. 
And I started doing that, and like within the very first weekend, I had four coyotes uh, on the trap. Yeah, so it, it was it's pretty insane how effective these things are. And like I said, it's not it's not that difficult to do. You just have to you know just just do it. Um, and then for the raccoons, I have caught them in those uh, on those regular traps, but uh, the ones that are I guess they're even easier to set up. But they call them uh, dogless. So think about yeah. it like a like the raccoon sticks their hand in there they try to pull the bait out and then when they pull the bait out they catch you just kind of handcuffs them to to the trap so um i started doing that at this place just because and, and i'm focusing more on those type of traps just because the bigger issue is the raccoons not necessarily mm-hmm. the um but yeah so far like i've only done it like a couple of weekends so far and i already got three three big raccoons and a, and a possum out of out of that uh and then today um we just had um, some bad weather and what I've noticed is that if it gets too cold right right now, we're like, you know, end of December, beginning of the new year. But if it gets too cold, like in the twenties, what I've seen the raccoons just going to almost like not quite hiber- hibernation, but they just like stay in the dens uh, for multiple mm. days uh, before they come back out to look for food. But when it's a little bit warmer, like thirties, forties, they definitely come out at, at, uh, at night, especially. Let's so see, that's I, a that's an interesting observation, you know. Yeah, and you really don't hear people make those kinds of observations about raccoons, but that's cool. You're paying attention. Yeah, uh, if it gets too cold, they they don't move as much. If it warms up just a little bit, they'll uh, they'll come out. Um, so I I set out six of these uh, dogless traps tonight. And I was I was I was actually kind of late. I was setting traps at like three in the afternoon, and then by the time I was done, it was like dark. And I'm I didn't bring my <laughs> I didn't bring my headlamp, so I'm like using the flashlight on my phone just to find my way back out. I mean, I know how to get out enough light just so I can get my way find my way out, not trip onto anything. Sure. Um, so yeah, they're they're set, and uh, I'm gonna spend the next three days checking the trap line. I did set one. Uh, what do you call this coyote trap setup? Uh, I ran out of time to do a, a few other ones, but then maybe tomorrow morning after I go check it, I'll I'll drop a few more, and then for the next two three three two or three days, I'll uh, I'll get back out there and just see what what's getting caught. I'm using a tip that I got from from different people was to use cat food, like dry cat food, mm-hmm. in the into the tubes. Uh, also like uh, honey roasted peanuts. M&M's, like just, you know, all kinds of different stuff that, that kind of gives the, the sweet tooth for the raccoons because they'll eat anything. Um, and then, the, you know, the cat food has a smell to it. And um, that place that I bought all the traps from has this uh, shellfish oil. Okay. So you use that on the trap itself because, I mean, it, smell, it has a really interesting smell because you think like shellfish, you probably think like pungent, fishy, but it mm-hmm. actually has like like sweet smell to it is very very unique huh. uh so I just dab that on the edge of the of the trap just to kind of get that aroma in the in the area and like let the uh the wind um push that around yeah that is that is really interesting and you know what uh i'm i'm impressed with how much effort you've put into that that's something that um Skip Sly, a guy who uh, I think we both know, and and uh, uh, somebody who's 
really, you know, he's the guy when it comes to managing a hunting property. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get more, we'll get into this more as far as like the, the buying land, flipping land thing. I think that's important for hunters to hear about. Um, but, uh, he is kind of the first, I mean, you've always heard people talk about, um, well, there's a couple things that are related to it. You're, you're spot on with the predation problems coming from raccoons. That pressure on ground nesting birds is probably other than habitat loss, which goes hand in hand, um, uh, is probably the, you know, the main thing that's killing, uh, uh, and, and destroying nests, you know, are, are raccoons. Um, and maybe what, 40 years ago or so, um, uh, was kind of the last time there was really a strong fur, uh, market to motivate people to go out and hunt and, and target raccoons, a species that are not, you know, really viewed as a useful uh, uh, game species for food, you know, but definitely for their pelts at one time. But, uh, of course, the bottom's fallen out on on that, and the only, you know, real motivations left for people to do much raccoon hunting is – um, either because they just like coon hunting, you know, they, they run, they run dogs at night and stuff like that, or, um, uh, they have a problem with too many of them on their property and they're really in tune with what's going on with their property and they're going to get out there with the traps. And it sounds like you're doing that, which, which is awesome. Um, I don't know, Mo, have you seen, uh, some of the videos Skip has posted on, the raccoon damage to uh, some of his uh, food plots and and uh, just his regular crops, um, and he traps a crazy number of raccoons on his properties. He was uh, uh, giving me a tour on one of his places once, and um, you know he would just like stop and be like, "Look at that! That's raccoon damage right there. They destroyed this." this tree I planted, you know, you know, it'd be like a fruit tree or something like that sapling and raccoons climbed on it, pulled the one piece of fruit off it, snapped the tree in half, you know, and, uh, he has worked very hard on that. But, uh, is that kind of like where you got the idea that, Hey, I need to, I need to be all in on this. Or is it just from like, you know, obviously you made a lot of observations yourself and just seeing what kind of you know, what you did and didn't have on your farm. Yeah. Um, I am familiar and, and, and I know Skip, um, we have chatted quite a bit and he, um, he's given me all the tips this, this past season. Uh, I did see the, his most recent post on, on people's, I think paraphrasing, but he said something like, you know, deer get blamed for all this crop damage, but really is the raccoons. Mm, and and yep. I've, I've seen that myself where, um, if the farmer has like, let's say it's just like corn. Um, and then the way that the raccoons will eat the corn is they'll knock the, the whole thing where the deer will just maybe grab the, the ear of corn and then just, you know, go to town on that. But raccoons are just messy. They'll just knock everything down. And I've seen the same, heard about the same thing with, with black bears. They just knock things mm. down. 
hogs are the same way they just like tear things up so um <laughs> i i guess <clears throat> for me it was i already kind of had a, a knife for this sort of thing on my previous farm because of the coyotes uh sure. i didn't have as many raccoons at the other property but when i got here got this new one and it, it was just evident like day one they're like water hole gets hit every single day with raccoons every single night with raccoons and every other like i said every other camera like every single night like like clockwork they're they're there every night so and the fact that they didn't have any any turkeys i just kind of like added the, mm-hmm. the two things uh and decided to do something about it have you have you noticed a difference i mean obviously it's 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 pretty early in the game for you but have you uh have you noticed less raccoons on your cameras and and less in your traps and so forth? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, three raccoons for what I think might be, if I had to estimate how many I live in this in the property, I would say there's easily like thirty raccoons. Whoa! If I yeah. So I don't think that the three that I've taken so far are, are, have made us a, a dent. Like tonight, I already saw, like, <clears throat> as I was driving back here, uh, I was getting, you know, cell cam pictures of raccoons already on the move. So we'll see what tomorrow brings. But, uh, but yeah, like, I, it's it's going to take me staying on top of this, you know, all winter long in the spring to, mm-hmm. to put it down. I don't, I don't think that uh, that three is going to be enough, given how many they're, they're living here. Yeah. 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 Raccoons are just such an interesting story, you know, um, <clears throat> talked about the, the fur market decline, but also just another species like coyotes, like deer, um, mm. that have adapted well to the presence of an expansion of human development. And, uh, you know, uh, my dad said this once, he's like, uh, obviously when you're going to put a pail of garbage at the end of your driveway, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, every house has that, and so you know it, raccoons do well with that. I mean, you can look even in urban areas now, and you go out at ten o'clock and with a flashlight and walk behind every garage and and all the yards and under every fruit tree in the summer. There's going to be a bunch of raccoons, and um, you know it's it's uh kind of a you know obviously we don't want to eradicate them they belong here but they definitely don't they definitely aren't in healthy quantities uh as the things stand now so and it does hurt those other things like you mentioned uh especially turkeys so yeah i i applaud you man that's that's huge so to be able to set traps and uh, address this problem you got to own some ground um did I mean? How did you decide to get into buying land, man? What did you grow up like? Did your family have have some uh, family ground or something that you could enjoy, or were you one of those those guys who just kind of always thought, you know, man, it'd be nice to it'd be nice to own my own piece of dirt? Or when you got into hunting, were you just only limited to public land? I mean, what what motivated you to start this journey? Sure, um, I'll I'll keep it kind of kind of short but the i mean it's like most guys i started um uh, hitting the pub and all well i'll start off by by saying i've only been hunting for eight years awesome. the first 
three years or so, it was all public, like nothing. And I just grinding it out and just, you know, and everything that comes with that. Um, somewhere along the way, I met some guys from uh, out of state that lease a lot of ground. And they say, like, hey, like, you're busting your butt on, on public. We have a room room for one more guy in our in our lease. You know, do you want to, you know, be, be part of it? I'm like, yeah, sure, that'd be awesome. That very first season that I hunted that lease, I saw more bucks on the hoof than I had seen in mm. like the past three years and like the very first set. So that just completely blew my mind about, about just like the quality of the the hunt and the and just your overall experience. Yeah. Uh getting access to to private ground. Um there was a catch though about the how this was set up. So these guys come from out of town. Uh things like it was like four four of these guys and they would show up November first and they would hunt through the tenth. Just like the, the a rut hunt. Mm-hmm. I was not allowed to hunt that place before they showed up or while they were here. So after November 10th, when they left, I had the place to myself. But you're dealing now with a property that has, even though it's a couple hundred acres, it's a property that has been hunted heavily by many people every mm-hmm. single day, rain or shine. So, um, so it was, it was good and it was bad. It was good because it's probably better than hunting public land because you have all these you know hundreds of acres to yourself but you're getting a bit of like the quote-unquote like, like leftovers if you yeah, will right. yeah right yeah i mean like how why why did they were they paying more than you is that how they were able to lay claim for those no it was just they there's um it was all split equally i mean these guys were all from the same town they're all friends mm-hmm. um you know when you when you have what they say like four guys hunting at the same time um what 200 300 acres sounds like a lot that's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure so having me as the added bonus there it was uh you know help with with the payments and and the lease was very very affordable so uh so I, i mean back then it was like Dude, the opportunity is awesome, and mm-hmm. I'm seeing more than ever before. So you know, it, it wasn't a big deal. But as as time went by, I, I was like, well, like I want to hang out with them. I like these guys a lot. So I was like, I want to hang out with you guys. We love to hunt when 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 you're here because I was still hunting public when they were like that November first to the tenth, and I was hanging out with them at nine and that kind of stuff. And then when they left, like I would just switch over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, hey, like I, I really want to. It would be great if I could hunt with you guys, and then uh, the lead guy of of the of the kind of like the leads, he's like, yeah, let me run it by the other guys, and then it was like one of them who's like, I don't know, like we're already putting a ton of pressure. One more person's gonna even like put it over the edge. So, like that one guy saying no, and and like uh, you know, it's too many of us. That was the trigger for me to say, okay, like. I'm just going to buy my own piece. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then this is the other part, like when you have a lease and, and I don't think most people think about this when they're, when you go into a lease with multiple people, like your philosophies about land management, your philosophies about how you set it up, how you want to hunt it, 
where you put the stands, where you put the food plots, how many food plots, what seed you put in. Like, people might have different opinions about this. So mm -hmm. when you have multiple people sharing it, what you think, and I'm, I mean, I'm not an expert by any means, but I was reading a lot at the time. So I was like, well, everything I'm reading, I would, if I had my own piece, I would approach it differently than the way that mm. this. Uh, but that's, I'm like, a, that, still that's a really good point because there's certain things that, that uh, people just don't see eye to eye on, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And yeah. uh, um, I've, and it's interesting. So maybe this is a good time to, I know I'm kind of interrupting your story here, but, but I think it's relevant. You know, when you're a, a first gen hunter, like both you and I are, that is how we learn how to hunt. We read stuff from the experts. Like we may not know hunting, but we know how to research. You know what I mean? Like we live professional lives. We've, you know, safely navigated life until the point that we, we started hunting or whatever. And, and we figured that we figured other things out on our own. So when we start figuring out hunting, we're listening to podcasts, we're, we're watching YouTube videos or reading magazines or reading books and we're getting some of the best information. And then when you're hunting with guys who maybe have like, before we started this call, you made the reference, like kill their first deer when they're five, you know, like they've, <clears throat> they haven't, they probably have not, not all by any means. I know, I know lots of guys who've been hunting all their lives that are a student of hunting, but I also know a lot of guys who've been hunting all their lives that are not, they just kind of more or less tweak the game plan that they inherited from their dad or whoever. And, uh, when you approach them with <clears throat> like research based facts or opinions, it's kind of, yeah, we, you know, no, we do it this way. And right. there can be some of that headbutting, you know, that's a, that's a really good point that you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I'll <laughs> give you an example something that, I mean, these guys are all, are all that, that guy who has been hunting since they were five. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I brought to them was this Jeff Sturge's Lincoln mm. Branch. And they're like, what? You put a stick on a, on a, on a string and that's going to get, like, get them to work a script. I'm like, yeah, try it. And that same night, like they were, they were seeing on the camera, they was working overnight. They had, <laughs> <laughs> they were putting Lincoln branches in every single stand. And I'm like, wow, like here's a new guy. Just saw something that seems to be working online to, and brings it over to guys that have been hunting their entire lives. And this yeah. was like new news. Um, and it works so it was like i thought i that was kind of like i don't know it was like a very it was just very telling for me that you should just keep an, an open mind about this mm -hmm. whole thing to do your research because people who have been doing it their whole lives in many ways are setting their ways kind of like what you were saying mm -hmm. just now like this is the way grandpa has always done it this is the way the dad mm -hmm. has always done it. Therefore, it's the way that I've always will do it. Do you, do you feel like, too, that being a, you know, I think one of the things that um, I'm thankful for is, um, I mean, this kind of this is kind of viewed as a bad trait, but when it comes to tradition and stuff mm -hmm. like that, I'm pretty irreverent. 
Um, like <laughs> I'm a Chicago bears fan. So, I mean, it's like, I can't, you know, I can't buy into any kind of tradition. The, the, what tradition did we lose every single game, every single year? You know what I mean? Right. Whereas, where some people they're all about, Oh, you know, we we're here for the tradition of, of this and that. And it's like, yeah, man, I don't have any tradition to hang on to when it comes to hunting. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's easy for me to throw things out the window that I think are dumb or don't work. And whereas again, if, well, this is the way that grandpa's always done it, or this is the way that we've always done it at deer camp, you know, it probably, I probably would, would have some more of those hangups. So I've had that thought before where when you are a first gen hunter, you're almost at an advantage with your decision-making. Like you can adopt best practice easier because you know, you, you know, who cares about tradition? I don't know any tradition. I just, I just want to kill a deer, you know? Yeah. Somebody said to me, um, said to me, um, you, you haven't learned any bad habits Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're, you're researching and you're keeping your, your horizons or you're wide open. So you ha- you haven't been set in, in in a way that somebody else established for you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very very wise wise words there, and uh, a lot of truth to it. And we can apply that to different things in our life too. You know, another good reason to uh, not write things off just because we weren't you know growing up doing them. You know, you can you can pretty much pick up anything and. Uh, um, give it a try. And if you really want it and, and really interested in it, you can learn it and, and, uh, you can enjoy it in a way that's, that's, uh, probably a little bit different and maybe even in some ways better than what you would otherwise. So, yeah, I think there's a good lesson in there. Um, along, you know, I love how in your story there, you're just like, yeah, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go buy my own piece. Um, I feel like buying land is one of those in a, in a recent podcast, I talked about this. Um, like, uh, we have these giants in our mind, right? I think as first gen hunters, that can be pretty easy to have. Like, uh, just starts with filling a tag. Um, you know, man, how do I kill a deer? Uh, then, you know, you pick up a bow and it's like, how do I kill a deer with a bow? You know? And, and, sometimes those things can feel impossible, you know? Um, but then as you do them, you start to realize, Oh, this is, this is doable. I'm doing this. You know, it's kind of like when you first start riding your bike without training wheels, when I first started riding my bike without training wheels, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, I crashed because I was like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be, you know, on the ground bleeding by now. What's going on here? This isn't right. I'm still going, you know? And it's, it's kind of that way with hunting once you start having that success, it just builds and it comes naturally. But another one of those giants that I think is similar to that is buying land. Buying land seems like such a huge beast to tackle. Um, but you were just like, it was kind of like a simple decision that you made. You're just like, well, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go do something better. Um, how did you get yourself into that frame of mind to just like, go after it i mean that that one is just it's something that it applies on everything in life for me it's not just mm. about hunting 
goes from like you know, the, the <laughs> I give you a, <laughs> this, this should be a good example. So, um, I went to, to college in the, in the outside of Chicago into, um, Illinois tech right across the street from, from the white Sox. Okay. It's a tech. And I want to say at the time it's like 70 or 80% men to women ratio. So using that as an example, the more I met my wife in college and the moment I saw her, I'm like, you do not belong here. I have never seen you here. And I'm going to, like, I got to go out with her before every, you know, <laughs> after I got to get to her before they do. And, uh, and you know, fast forward, like, I ended up marrying this the, this person. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so, I like I said, Good it's work, just like, man. <laughs> when you have your, for me, it's always been like, if you, if you want it badly, you'll mm. figure out do it and it has been like i said like eight years hunting from like you know seeing a deer missing deer because of buck fever mm -hmm. to this past season shooting two two booners is like well you can't make it happen you just have to you know stay at be, keep at it and and uh you know always be a student of yeah. of what, what you love and it'll happen you just gotta you know how bad do you want it mm -hmm. so when you got started um like what I've heard some different, I mean, let's talk some nuts and bolts here because I think this is going to be as far as what's really useful to our listeners. You know, yeah. a lot of this is just going to be like good, you know, insight and philosophical and good, good stories that we're going to get to here before the episode's done. But, but, uh, as far as like what's really useful to our listeners, I really think that buying land and hearing from a guy who's been there, done that is going to yeah. be really useful to them. When you were when you were going into buying, <clears throat> what and and maybe you were a cash buyer, maybe you financed it. I don't know. I, I haven't asked you yet. But um, uh, if you're financing, which is probably the position most guys are going to be in, yep. Um, are you looking at like a a twenty percent down, thirty percent down? What kind of down payment are you looking at? And yep. Um, I know more, you know, the interest rates are pretty high right now, especially yep. compared to a year and a half ago. Um, but like what, for, from the financials, what were some basic rules you were looking for going into it? Yeah. So going into this, never having done it before, all I knew going into it was you need to have 20%, 20% down. So I'm like, okay, got it. Then the other piece is, well, how much money do you currently have to have a 20% down? So um, I was looking for, I really wanted a 40. Mm -hmm. And the way that I went about it, I, I went on a website that tracks every single, you know, like Land Watch or something like that, tracks every single listing that is out there. And I said, okay, well, I live outside of outside of Chicago where can I go that has decent beer hunting and is going to give me the most bang for my buck? Mm. So I sorted the list from the, the lowest price per acre. And I ended up seeing that, well, you can actually buy 40 acres in Northern Wisconsin for a thousand dollars an acre. Mm. And it's, it's a six hour drive one way, but if you really want it and you want 40 acres, and that's your budget, $40,000 all in. 
well, that's that's that they very quickly eliminates all the other options. So, mm-hmm. you know, like you look at Western Illinois at the time, it was like, well, how am I going to afford 40 acres at five or six thousand dollars an acre? Like, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, at the time I'm in my early early 30s i'm like you know trying to start a family trying to do all these things at the same time trying to buy some land and it's just a lot so that's kind of how it went about it so do you have 20 percent down is that 20 percent enough to like cover something like you know a 40 acre piece yeah so like like now just figure out what bank what credit union is willing to uh you know give you the give you the loan so mm-hmm. i found a found a uh, actually, the the I'm trying to remember. This was a Whitetail Properties listing, and the and the agent put me in contact with. And actually, I I have found like I'm on my third farm now. Every single time that I work with a land specialist, regardless of what company they're associated with, they have contacts. So like they know a banker. They and everybody right, wants yeah. to, make, right? Like That's the banker, the agent wants to make this work. So they'll put you in contact with somebody that is going to help you mm-hmm. um, happen. So that's kind of happened for me. Like the first one was I already had enough money on the side to to put put that 20% down and then buying up, you know, 40 acres, $4,000 an acre in Northern Wisconsin is, you know, mm-hmm. at, a, at a rate in 2020, that was incredibly low. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it made it a lot easier at the time. I think if I was doing it today from scratch, it's a lot tougher just because interest rates are much higher and land has gone up in price. So it, and you know, finding 40 acres for a thousand bucks an acre probably wouldn't be as easy today. Well, and there's a lesson there too, you know, interest rates are up and, um, <clears throat> I imagine you've probably tuned into, uh, another friend of mine. And I think a guy you probably know is Jay Kofer from, uh, Exodus and he does the land podcast and he had a guy, uh, an agent, uh, a, I don't know if he was with whitetail properties or, you know, some other outfit like that, or just on his own. I'm not sure, but he had him, he's from Iowa. He had him on his, on the land podcast recently. And that guy said, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to look back at what land prices are right now. And even factoring in, which I imagine interest rates are going to go down again. I mean, think back to what our parents talk about, you know, of course, houses were like $15,000 back then, but they were, they were buying, you know, they were buying, uh, houses at, you know, seven, 8% interest. And then when we were at house buying age, man, think back to, cause I'm pretty close to you in age. Think back to like, uh, my wife and I, we bought our first house in 2015 and I want to say we were maybe a three, you know, I think it's probably more like two and a half percent interest rate at that, at that time, you know, so interest rates will change. Um, but you know, land value, property value only climbs. Um, you might right. see little dips here and there, but, uh, there's a good principle there cause you got in back in 2020 and now you're in like your money has been working for you um over the past you know three and a half coming on four years uh and uh so if somebody has the ability to go ahead and hop in now would you agree with me in saying that hop in now oh yeah that a hundred percent like don't try to get 
you know, the best property, just get started mm-hmm. and know that it's just a stepping stone towards what you really, really want. Mm-hmm. And like get in, that property is going to appreciate it. You put the sweat equity is going to appreciate all that kind of stuff. You just got to sit on it for, you know, few years not that many years like i can tell you about my experience but um you know, once you're in just you have 1031 exchange money to you know bring mm-hmm. it to the next and like that's what i did you know for me it started with 10 grand that i had set aside and now like flip you know into this third property th- that 10 grand turning to 100 grand yeah just just flipping from one property to the next yeah, that's awesome. That's that's really awesome. So, and and something we should probably explain there too is when when Mo's talking about a ten thirty one, um, that's a uh, a tax uh, jargon for you can avoid paying capital gains. Correct when you sell a property in a certain amount of time or for a certain amount of profit within a certain amount of time. I can't remember the whole formula there, but you have 30 days from sale to reinvest uh, your profit into another property. And you can kind of kick the can down the road for paying that capital gains tax. And um, I mean, the sad thing is you don't get to totally like, like you don't get to totally avoid it for, well, you might, but uh, your your uh, your heirs may have to pay some uh, capital gain tax when they inherit the property from you, um, but then they can ten thirty one it into their own piece of ground, you know, which is right. tough because let's say they just get the ground handed to them from from you through inheritance, but and so therefore, you know, there's there's a tax fee associated with that, I believe, is how that goes, and then you can't really like put that back into the same piece of ground. So it'd have to be another piece, I guess. I don't know. There's there, but point being 1031, when you hear, you'll hear land guys talk about that a lot. Um, and it's just a way to flip farms and avoid losing a big chunk of your profits to taxes. Um, if you, so, if, if you do it the right way. Yeah. And also with that, um, the you know someone might be thinking okay so you're telling me if i sell then i need to go find a place within 30 days to buy well you need to have that place found before you're selling <laughs> you know you need to like like have have probably like i don't know what would you say three maybe four options of uh properties that you would like to uh reinvest in right away so that way i mean 30 days isn't a lot of time to to um be making a decision right right yeah you have to declare the thing the term is declare what properties you're interested in uh the, the other term is of like kind so like haunting property or like recreational mm. land recreational land yeah um yeah that whole thing is just tricky and then at the end of the year you have to i've done it myself with with uh you know your end of year taxes you have to mm there's a whole bunch of paperwork that needs to be associated with this 1031. If you have an accountant that knows, this is the other thing. Most accountants don't know what a 1031 is. Mm. So you need that actually knows what that is to, to do your taxes properly. That's so that has- that's a good, that's a good little piece of info there. Yeah. So, so you need to explain that to them. I'm going yeah. to make a note of that. 
Yeah. So for me, I've done it myself in the past couple of farms. Well, this year, I'm like, it's it's just honestly, it's a it's a headache to do it because there's a lot of numbers and a lot of like check this box if this or check this box if that, and it's just like get somebody who's who's an expert at doing mm-hmm. this knows 1031s and then just save the the headache but yeah like if i went to like you know if you live outside of a you know, city or you know urban area and you go like oh i want to do 1031 for a farm they're like what are you talking about i've never done anything like that because they're used to doing taxes for the average person who doesn't own um property like that so you you need somebody who who, who knows yeah who knows yeah. that's great advice yeah for sure okay so um uh you know once you i mean i'm sure you had to do some looking around you talked a little bit about the help from like you know these these agents that specialize in recreational properties but i also think too that like that can be a challenge too right because you know everyone wants a good deal and and um i think that real estate agents get a bad rap sometimes like you're talking you know they know their stuff and they know they know um what things are worth they know what they can see what kind of potentials there uh flipping recreational ground has been around long enough now that the cat's out of the bag on that you know you're not fooling anybody they know what your intentions may be and how much money you stand to gain in a few years is it kind of hard, like knowing who you can trust, so that they aren't, you know, running the price up on you a little bit, or, or, um, you, you know, so, somehow making that they aren't somehow making it more challenging for you to get a piece because, you know, they they just get it so well. Like you're you're working with an educated person, you know. Do do you find that, you know, flipping farms? getting a good price for it is a little bit tougher now that there's so many educated realtors out there. Yeah. Well, I think <clears throat> let's maybe what we mean by flipping, like do you have people who are looking for a real, you know, below market value come in, do some work and then truly like flipping it within mm-hmm. a year. When I say flipping it is I'm hanging on to these farms for like at least three years. Okay. And in the last two farms I had, I held on to them for three years. It was never my, well, the first one, yeah. But like the second one, I thought that that was going to be like the one that I was going to keep for a long time. Mm. Um, you know, I poured concrete, I had power brought in, I had a, a permanent campsite and all, all that stuff. I was looking into building a, a cabin there. So I'm hanging on to these places and treating them as if I was going to hang on to them for a very long time. So all the, mm. all the work, all the sweat equity, all the contractors bring out to do work on it, I'm not doing it with intent to like just increase in value and selling it the very next okay, year. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm like doing the work as if I was going to keep this for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, appreciate in, in value and, you know, like the first farm that I bought, like the 40, you know, 40 acres for 40 grand, I hired Jeff Sturgis to come out to that farm before you know he was big at the time now he's huge right mm-hmm. but um he came out to that farm walked it with me developed a plan with with me i thought i was gonna you know six hours away but i, I was treating that promise as if i was gonna be there for a long time 
Yeah. And I want the expert to make it as good as I could for myself. You know, I ended up selling it and the other person benefited from it, but that's mm-hmm. I'm not just trying to make a quick buck. I'm truly sticking with it for a, for a, for a while. Sure, sure. Do you feel like uh paying Jeff to come out or or you know, there's a lot of guys that you can do, a lot of good land managers out there that know their stuff. Did you feel like that was a real advantage to you to have him come do that? Money yes. well spent? For two reasons. One, it helped me put I had watched all of his videos, I had read all his books, but getting boots on the ground using your farm as an example and being able to ask all those questions, that mm-hmm. was totally worth it. Now the other part that I, obviously I don't think that he talks I've never seen him talk about this. The moment that you're able to market your farm on the internet as a a turnkey Jeff Sturges Mm. farm, no, no, they're like, like this person was there and they put their hands on it and they did Mm -hmm. all the work. That brings a lot more interest to your, to your property. If you have the right person involved. And in my case, that was, I had competing offers within the first three days. It sold within the first three days. Wow. That's awesome. So what made you decide to, to sell just because of the distance to, to get there or, or what? There's, there's a few, few reasons. The first one was Northern Wisconsin is tough hunting. Yeah. It's very tough. Lot, it's lots of woods, not that many deer. The deer density is lower, and then you have wolves, you have bears. You, it's just um, the the odds are not in your favor to get uh, a big big antler deer. Mm-hmm. And, and I put three years into it. The hunting did get better after I implemented Jeff's uh, Jeff's plan, but I was like, you know, first gen hunter. You almost feel like you are on a <laughs> under the clock, you know, trying to yeah. catch up. To, I've been doing this for for decades, so I'm like, all right, like I I need to get on big because I still had the access to the lease and I could see like the type of deer I could get on if I came back to Illinois, so, you know, um, or even southern Wisconsin. Like, okay, like good experience. First time I hire an excavator. First time doing my own food plots. First time, first time for everything. Only right. the property leaving it in a much better condition than when I first bought it. Mm-hmm. Making a profit. So by flipping it, not flipping it, but like by selling it, it opened the, the door for me to be able to afford a property in Illinois that we're going from $1,000 an acre to $3,000 an acre. Sure. And that's the piece that, that it was more, it just became real for the first time to be able to afford something like that. One, because you have been building some equity on the property. It appreciated because of the sweat equity. But also in my job, I was making more money and I put some more money on the side so I could bring even a bigger um, down payment to that that second property. So that's kind of how that one played out. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, it's really good asking these questions and just hearing somebody you know go through the story. If you had one reason why you th- – you know, wh- what do you think keeps – a lot of people from, you know, pulling the trigger, going and buying their own piece. What do you think the biggest hurdle is? Uh, the first hurdle has to be money, having money on the side mm-hmm. and, and uh, 
the if it's a big responsibility to have like you know you talk to any banker that is not into land and they're like why would we finance bare bare dirt like there's nothing on it there's no value on it and when a banker talks about your property that way it scares you you're like mm -hmm. yeah i guess there, there's no ground <laughs> So I, I think that would be probably the, the first thing. And then, you know, I guess being afraid of getting stuck with it and not being able to sell it in case it was a dud mm. or something, I think could be another yeah. reason. Yeah. One yeah. Thing I were talking about is as you, as you become more experienced buying and selling property or uh, your list of, of uh, what you're looking for becomes more refined. Mm. So I look at the property first property to like the second to then the third what you're looking for your checklist becomes much more refined on what is a good like you, your eye for picking a property starts getting sharpened sure. like skip who has bought and sold so many of them i'm sure he he can agree with something like that yeah definitely yeah that's uh that's that's uh uh you know super insightful great to to hear from somebody who's doing it, making it work. And then of course the land management side of it, you know, doing the, making sure there's good food sources on the property, make sure you have good bedding cover, making sure that you're taking care of the, um, you know, like you're obviously managing for turkeys as well, not just deer. So you got the, the predator trapping going on there. Um, I imagine you've probably had to cut down some trees and, uh, do some logging and stuff like that. Um, uh, but do you, do you enjoy doing the work too? Like, uh, have you found that the land management side of it has provided a lot of, you know, excitement and fun and, and enjoyment? Yeah. When it, when it's, uh, you know, I learned to do food plots at the lease and my, like my understanding of that, you know, driving the tractor, the till, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. I learned it there, but when it's your own, ground and it, and it's your your sweat will make this like you know know what impact it will have you know it will improve the quality of the hunt if you, if mm. you put it um yeah it becomes like a full-time call it a hobby if you will but you know like even though i'm done hunting deer for the season like i'm still in the property now i'm like doing the trapping within the next month or two i'll do some scouting and do some of the chainsaw work for the tsi um and then like once the spring comes like what you know i did switch grass planting this first season let's see how it turned out as we go into the spring if we need to do like a controlled burn or if i need to have somebody come out with a drill and do more of the switch grass in spots that maybe they good like all do all that kind of stuff. It just becomes like a year long project where every season has certain types of things that you have, you have to do if you yeah. want the, the hunt to be good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love hearing about it. I, I hope everyone feels inspired to, to, you know, kind of just view it as, I guess really just kind of like a, uh, like Mo was saying this, this like simple way of looking at it. I want that. So, I got to go get it. No one's going to just deliver it to me. And, uh, I think that that's really important to have that matter of fact, uh, uh, you know, drive 
to getting things that we want. You know, if we, if we just kind of sit around and wait for things to be just the ultimate scenario, it's, it's never going to come. That being said, don't buy a, a terrible piece either. You know, uh, if you see a piece of ground that's been sitting on the market forever, eh, there's, there's probably a reason, but, um, if you, you know, I think another thing that people can do is, um, uh, they can be proactive and try and see if somebody's just willing to sell. Maybe they don't haven't even listed it, but maybe you know of a farmer who doesn't hunt and uh, doesn't have any family that hunts his ground, and he's got like a you know a twenty acre uh, piece of timber that he's just paying property taxes on and not getting any value out of. Um, you know, go to him with an offer. And sometimes I think you can get a better price that way too. Um, when you, when you, uh, do some of that work too. And Spartan Forge is a great way to do that. You know, you can find landowner information. You can of course look at, uh, the aerial maps and, and the different types of cover on a piece. And you can, uh, get, get that good quality information that help you make those decisions. But man, it's paying off though, as you said, uh, even though you've only been hunting for eight years this year, man, you tagged two awesome bucks. Yeah. Uh, what, when was the, did you shoot your first one in October? End of October. Yeah. End of October. Was it that big cold front that came in around Halloween? Yeah. yeah. Let's, right hear the, let's hear the story, man. Uh, so this is at my, my new farm. I, I just bought this farm in, in February of 2023, hmm. uh, I mean, I just, I had a plan from day one on what what I needed to do, you know, switch grass, you know, soybeans, um, clover, water holes, uh, you know, uh, what do you call this, um, mock scrapes, all of that kind of stuff was already laid out from, from like day one. Hmm. And one thing that i did this year that i honestly made me a little anxious because i've never done this before um i stayed out of it and i didn't hunt until that that uh that cold front started started hitting um i in the past you know it's october 1st it's every weekend after october 1st i would be out there you know, if, even if the if the weather's not that great, I would just sit on a, on a you know marginal stand, and uh, and, it, and it never worked. It never paid off. Mm. And there, um, I just stayed out, no scent, no nothing. No, wasn't checking anything. I wasn't messing with anything. I just stayed out of the property, and um, this was must have been like the October twenty. 28th or 27 28th this was only the second time that i sat on the stand and the wind was a north northeast wind that day i wanted to sit on another stand where i knew the the deer that the bucks were coming out uh, as a staging area um but i wasn't going to risk it because my stand was just to the east um of them and if coming from the northeast it was my stand was was going to blow right into them so i took a uh, more cautious approach. I took uh, sat on a more of like a more really is a, a perimeter stand, 
and uh, right around five o'clock or so, you know, as as uh, as I've seen it on the trail cameras, they come out to the staging area on the spot that I was would have liked to sit, but the wind wasn't right. And I see the same buck that I was used to seeing. It's it's an old buck, but not like <clears throat> not a huge scoring rack. And I was that was the buck that I was gonna you know like come late November if I hadn't filled a tag. That was the buck I was gonna go after. And then this buck, the one that ended up shooting, comes right behind him. And the stand um, where I was sitting at, it's maybe like a hundred to hundred and fifty yards from where they were coming out of. So I'm sitting on that stand with the binoculars looking in that direction and I see them come out and I see the big one that I'm used to seeing every every evening. And then I see this one who I hadn't seen before. Hmm. And I just see like just this towering rack, <laughs> just incredible mass, incredible brow ties, like everything you want on a, on a deer, like this guy had it. And I'm just staring at them in disbelief. And uh, the bigger, the first buck, the old, I think it's an older buck, goes back into um, back into the into the woods, uh, and then I lost sight of the one that I ended up shooting. And uh, I had a, I think it was a fawn at the, at the base of my tree, just kind of meandering and messing around with some of the uh, the soybeans. Sure. And it gets all squirrely and it takes off running. And I'm like, well, what was that? Because I know I had the wind on my face, so I'm like, it couldn't have been me. And I look up, but there's this branch that shoots off from from uh, from my tree that was blocking the way from from where where this this bigger deer was coming from. So when he when he kind of breaks uh, breaks away from uh, from the view that that was being blocked by this branch, I see him. I'm like, oh crap! It's like it's that buck, and it's now it's <laughs> and it starts walking. I mean facing me i'm like i can't i have a ton of cover behind me but i can't really make any sudden moves i still have my binoculars in my hand trying to you know looking on the other side so as soon as i see him i'm like slowly putting my binoculars down while trying to grab my rangefinder with the other hand while trying to grab my bow with the other hand and there's uh, and he's like still facing me walking closer and closer by now he's like at 30 yards and i just i just i caught me with my pants down like i could barely grab the bow and my my range obviously i had the range finder on him like 35 yards but he was moving away from me so it was like 30 32 35 and i just couldn't bring the bow in front of me um quick enough and then he got squarely too and then he took took off running to the southwest so he went past me behind me and i'm like incredibly frustrated and yeah. i'm annoyed beating myself up for not being ready but i'm like there's no way i could predict that he was going to pop out of nowhere like when i lost sight of him so i'm like man by now and it started raining at that time a little bit and it started to get dark and I'm, i remember sitting on the stand i'm thinking to myself i'm like man like do you know do i call it like you know it's done like you know like i'm you know pretty upset at this point and I'm like, no, you know what? Like, maybe he'll come back. And like, that's you know, like wishful thinking, trying to convince myself yeah, that. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Keep your chin up or whatever. I'm like, in my the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, this is not gonna work. And at the same time, I was, I was like, if I get down the tree, like I have to go in the direction where he went, so I'm probably gonna bump him. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, 
stay put. Like any other move right now would be a, a dumb one to make. Yeah. So what I do is I sat sideways so that my my left shoulder, my me you know, my bow arm is facing outwards uh, towards the direction where he came. And I put my binoculars down. I had I, I was completely ready if he did show up. And I kid you not, within three to five minutes of me telling to my telling myself maybe he'll come back, he came back. And he came back at the base of my tree, exactly from the same direction he ran away to. Uh, he was nine yards away, right below my tree. Uh, and this time I was ready. And I remember I just drew back. And it was such a hard shot because it was so steep. And I'm trying to like sneak it in between between the uh the spine and the uh and the front front shoulder and and i sh- and i shot him and actually spined him like it, it, it kind of like i got a few inches of penetration and he was like off to the side of the spine i do think it was kind of like sort of it was like wedged in between the spine sure. and, and it was good enough of a shot that he dropped him right on the spot Whoa. so he was on the ground at nine yards, not dead. He was, you know, I spied him, and uh, and immediately I grabbed the second arrow. As I grabbed the second arrow, the quiver with the other arrows falls off the tree. But oh. I, bro, so I knocked it. <clears throat> I take my time. I know he's laying on his side, so it was a much easier shot to make, and I just put it right, right in the in the vitals, and he was done. Like like he just stopped moving yeah. together. And like all this stuff happened in just seconds, right? Yeah. So I have, oh, and this is super cool. I have, <laughs> I have a trail camera right at the base of that tree. So oh, I have a nice. of him walking right in front of it, standing. And then another, another shot of, of him on his side with the two arrows sticking out. Wow. And, uh, it, and it was just wild. You know, you see the light at Knox just glowing. Yeah. And by now, finally fully dark. And I'm just like, I cannot believe what just happened because I hadn't seen this deer before. Turns out it was the deer that I had a shed uh, from uh, the spring when I bought oh, the property. Nice. And um, and it was the only shed that I found when I, when I got the property. But then I climbed down the, from the tree and I, like, I put the video on Instagram. And I'm like, just the reaction. Like, I have never seen a deer of this size in my in, on the hoof ever. Like, yes, yeah, you see awesome. that. That, but this is an insanely big deer uh and ended up scoring like gross like 180 182 Whoa. so it's just a beautiful massive tons of mass uh buck and i think we ended up weighing like two within like 270 um man that's a giant yeah huge deer and the uh, buddies came out to help me load him load him up and i just remember like i couldn't even drive the speed limit i was like moving at, a, at like a snail's pace on the on the you know on the side road just like trying to like <laughs> piece together like, what just happened right yeah happened went to the you know to the gas station to get you know to to get gas and i'm, I'm just sitting there i'm like it's still like replaying everything in my head it was just it was insane yeah what an awesome what an awesome moment and <clears throat> as a first gen hunter you know it's almost surreal when those moments happen it's like this is the thing that you know i just thought was going to be for everybody else but me so many times um right. you know i thought that 
you know, there's there's a uh, entrance fee getting into hunting, and that entrance fee is growing up doing it. Otherwise, you don't get a you don't get to kill big deer. You just get a maybe every once in a while shoot a small, you know, little buck or something like that. But obviously, that's not the case, and we shouldn't have those giants in our minds. You know, those these insurmountable things because if you put your mind to it and really uh, you know, try to, try to study it out and, and pick up on good information. Like even the fact that you made the mature decision to not just get up out of the tree and go follow that nice buck, but you're like, nope, I need to stay put. Um, I think, um, you know, it shows how much you've learned in a short amount of time. And then the proof is you got this beautiful mature buck. Uh, that's the evidence for, you know, what you've become capable of, of as a hunter. But that wasn't where you were done, right? You uh, you got another one, too. Oh, another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, went, uh, so a week went by. Um, what well, must have been like the, what, um, I'm trying to remember what day it was. Well, I mean, it was November, so that was the 27th. It must have been like the first weekend in, in November. Uh, so I went to another, the other piece that that I mentioned, the one that that, uh, that we leased, the one that I've been part of for all, all these years. Mm-hmm. Only this time, I, I actually didn't close the loop on this. The I'm now able to hunt um, with those guys at the beginning of the sea, of the beginning of the run. Um, so That's this good. one and. I was actually the first one who got on stand because they were driving and they were still like a, a days away from getting getting here. So I was like, showed them a text. I'm like, hey, you cool if I get on the stand this morning before you go up? Like, yeah, that's really fine. So I pick a stand, you know, based on the wind and the location, all that kind of stuff. And then, and, you know, it's like first set of the season uh, at, the, at the lease. And, you know, it's by eight o'clock i have a younger i want to say like a two-year-old two and a half year old buck you know roaming around I'm like okay it should be a good morning and then mm-hmm. hear some noise down and I'm, I'm like at a pinch point and there's a draw to the east winds blowing from the north northwest uh hear some rustling from the from the draw can't really see what's going on but kind of saw i saw a tail like there was there's some there was a deer in there mm-hmm. and then i turn around and then head up north I gave it a couple. I gave a, a couple of grunt calls. I'm like, here goes Nelton, see if, if he comes back. But knowing what had just happened the, the prior week, like now I was ready. I had my bow, put the binos down. I'm like, I'm ready for if anything comes. Uh, I got the bow in hand and the, the release in my other hand. Um, so sure enough, like within ten minutes of the grunt call, this the, the second year I ended up shooting comes again straight look coming towards me and um and then makes a right turn to hit a scrape and step into the opening where where i ended up shooting it and again this is like uh maybe like a 12 yard shot oh wow and i put it like it was a perfect shot it was like blew it blew him right through the both lungs and the i think it got a little bit of the heart shoot him get the complete pass through kind of like I it just this will stay with me forever. I shot him, and he just it didn't like he didn't move. Like he just stood there, almost like a delayed reaction. He didn't, he didn't know what hit him. 
Right. He had no idea. And then his, and then he almost like he freaked out and then took off running. But I could see I could see exactly what he did. He did. He went straight, caught to the right, and then I just saw him like just crash. And I, oh, I'm that's like, that's a good feeling. <laughs> down, and uh, you know, I get off the tree. I mean, I didn't even look for the blood. I mean, I know exactly where that deer was, and uh, and I walked up to him and like this is a deer that had been on the trail camera quite a bit uh, for the prior. Mm. Um, he actually broke both of his G2s fighting. So yeah, like we, we, from the pictures, we could tell estimate how long those G2s were. So we'll, we'll get them those, we'll get them repaired and and like make them look real nice. But yeah, we, we, uh, with the G2s, uh, he would score like a 167. Oh man. Uh, I mean, he, his main beams are like one of those like 20, 28 inches, and the other one's like twenty five, like just massive uh, main beams. And then the, uh, I mean, just wide rack, skinny, not not a lot of mass on the tines, but they're they just looks like great, great looking deer, an old deer, big deer, two hundred and mm. this one for sure was two hundred and seventy pounds on the scale. Wow, uh, yeah, so crazy yeah. season one week apart uh and i guess the biggest lesson was from versus prior years where i would grind it out you know every single day and i would take off from work for like three weeks and just mm-hmm. rain and run get out there every single day yeah all i did was play like the right time of the year and just wait for the right weather conditions and in both of those weekends we had a massive temperature drop with um with a front that had just passed and it's the right time when, when the deer should be moving. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one other, that I don't think that most of these habitat experts talk about uh, on YouTube and stuff like that is you can put all the time and effort into your property. If it's not in the right location, if it's not tap, tapping into the right yes. deer, you're just spinning your wheels. And I, yep. I learned, like I lived through that in all, all, all three farms, like the hunting got a little bit better every single time, but the effort that I put into all of them was exactly the same. I busted my butt in all three of them with the first mm-hmm. farm, most effort with excavation, excavators and all that stuff. So I think that's a one major piece that I wish experts talk about and say like, yes, like this will help improve your land, but it's not going to put, it's not going to put yeah, a it's one not, it's not fairy over. dust. Yeah. Yeah. You still have, you still have to look, well, and I think the other part too is when we look at buying a piece of ground, we only look at those property boundaries. We don't look to see what's happening on the neighbors and, right. and, uh, even from just knowing how the neighbors hunt, that's going to affect your property as well. And so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, some really good advice. You got to look for, look out for the things that money can't buy both good and bad, you know, mm-hmm. and identify what they are and, and make sure they're in your favor. So yeah, great, great advice, great advice. And man, just a huge congratulations to you on two, you know, world-class bucks, bucks that you're going to be able to stare at their mounts for, for, uh, many years to come and just, uh, think back on those stories, but, but also just, uh, a testament to, um, you know, you finding some good places to hunt and 
buying a farm and taking care of it. And I'm sure uh, that your the new piece is going to be a regular buck factory here coming up. And uh, as you uh, spend more and more time tricking it out, making the property exactly how you want it to hunt and everything else, um, I think it's I think it's only going to get better for you, man. And and uh, I'm excited to see you know as you make posts and and hopefully come on the podcast again in the future sometime and tell those stories just seeing what comes in now you know 5 10 15 years after you've been doing the land management stuff and and you know educating us all on on what we can look forward to if if uh, we put in that same that same effort so well, I want to thank Mo so much for coming on the podcast. He's got some traps to track early tomorrow morning, I'm sure. And uh, he doesn't have any buck tags left because he's uh, burned them all. He's uh, he's tagged out. and uh, um, Or do you get a landowner tag yet? Uh, you only have two. Uh, even if you get that, you only can get uh, harvest two bucks okay. a year. Yep. Sorry. So, uh, so unless he does some dope patrol, he's probably just going to be messing with traps this weekend. It sounds like maybe doing some, uh, some land management work as well, but thanks so much, Mo, for coming on the show. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in each and every week. Um, we just celebrated with episode number 200 just, uh, released today. And, uh, man, I had a lot of fun talking with Alex and Caleb, Um, Of course, the presenting sponsor for the podcast is Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge can help you with a million different things um, uh, from uh, traveling to, uh, you know, um, uh, looking for a piece of ground to buy to uh, looking at a a state park or something before you're going to go uh, hike, hunt, or camp there. All these things that you can use it for from the mapping standpoint, but then don't forget the thing that really makes Spartan Forge what it is is the deer behavior prediction um, where they uh, can kind of help you decipher how deer are going to be moving in your area. All of that is through Spartan Forge. You can find a link for them in the show notes. And uh, I strongly recommend you go with the year uh, um, uh, subscription. Uh, you get full access to everything there and um uh you can uh, uh you know totally enjoy spartan forge for what it is so i strongly recommend you do that then also uh get going on your own dream hunts plant get them planned start getting on acquiring uh, points where needed and all that alex uh from east west hunts uh, would love to help you w- do that and get started on that you get a free consultation figure out if alex is the right uh, fit for for what your goals are and and he'll be honest with you and 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 help tell you uh what to expect and make sure that um he is what's going to be what what uh is best for you and what you're looking for um you can go to eastwesthunts.com and get signed up for that free consultation tell him that i sent you there and you'll save 10 percent, which is really nice to save a little bit of money on that so so make sure you check out east west hunts their website is in the show notes as well. And then finally, shoot a big old slob buck like uh, Mo did this year or two. You got a hefty taxidermy bill coming up, but it ain't going to be that hefty if you go to Old Barn Taxidermy, well below the national average. They price their mounts at six ninety five for a shoulder mount, which is very affordable. National average is right around $900. And so uh, just a, a great, 
uh, a great price, but also it's a value because you get world-class work for that 695 bucks. Sam Gaylord, the owner of and founder of Old Barn Taxidermy, has been doing his work for, I believe, uh, four decades now. And uh, you take a deer into their shop or a bear or a turkey or a lion or whatever it is you hunt, it's going to come back in an awesome piece and something that uh, you can you can be very proud of for years to come. So head over to Old Barn Taxidermy. You can find a link for them as well in the show notes and uh, get rolling with them. Well, thanks again, Mo. Thank you to the listeners. Until next time, everyone, take care and take someone hunting.